and on the eighth day. God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die and dry his eyes and say, maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of hay wire feed sacks and shoe scraps, who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon and then pain in from tractor back put in another 72 hours. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink-combed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. So God made a farmer. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners, somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed, and rake, and disc, and plow, and plant, and tie the fleece, and strain the milk, somebody who'd bale a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says that he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. So God made a farmer. You know, in, in our urban and suburban life that we live, I think it's very difficult for us to really connect well with what it means to be a farmer. I mean, some of us here have either grown up in generations of farming or farmers, but for most of us, when you think about a farmer, you've got an idea, but the, but the diligence and hard work and reality of being a farmer is something that is completely missed for us urban, suburban people. And, and I want you to hold on to that word picture that you just gained, that word picture of a, a, a person uh, who is working hard and, and engaging deeply in the diligent hard work of life and family and land in an environment that is unpredictable and uncontrollable. Uh, a person that puts themselves into the work realizing that much of the outcome of the work depends on forces bigger than themselves. Uh, counting on things to come that they cannot control and working diligently in the hopes that those things will happen. I want you to hold on to that word picture because James, who is currently writing to the early New Testament church, is about to conclude his letter. He is going to close out this letter he sent out as a speech to the church to keep on keeping on. And in his conclusion, he is going to open the conclusion up with an illustration about a farmer. And if you don't understand the life of a farmer, then you don't understand what James is trying to get at. So hold on to that picture as we enter into the story of James. Now, as many of you may know, if you've been around or if you haven't, then this is a good time to just kind of get back in track. Uh, James is writing to the early church of the New Testament during a time when they are facing great obstacles that feel overwhelming and feel like the forces outside of themselves 
The forces around them, Herod and his powers, uh, Rome and their power, and the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin and their power, are beginning to press in so hard on the church, on the gospel, on this infancy of movement of the gospel, that it is, it is that feeling of, are we going to make it? And the church is sitting here, and James is writing to them. Now, now the church has been around for a little while now, and this is not their first run with hard times. I mean, they have experienced legitimately the ups and downs of missional living. They have gone through some things. They have seen miraculous realities in both the community that has been born on some of the physical realities like healings and the raising of the dead that happened, on spiritual realities and internal things that have shaped and changed on the Spirit of God coming and filling His people. I mean, they have seen some awesome stuff. They have also walked through some very difficult realities. Stephen got stoned, which set off a huge set of persecution, imprisoning men, women, and children because they were following the way, following Jesus. They have gone through the scattering from Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In that scattering, they have experienced some of the hardships that come with being on the move, some of the obstacles they've run into in uh, living on mission. Uh, They have been imprisoned, they have been beaten, they have been pushed, they have been pressed. So this is not the first time mission's getting hard for them. But there was a change in this because up to now, in all of the difficult things, in the leadership of the church, that is the apostles and the leaders, it seems that God has had a supernatural protection over them when they get imprisoned or put away. They they seem to just get freed supernaturally. Things happen. James, one of the disciples of Jesus, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, uh, he gets uh, taken by Herod, uh, sort of arrested by Herod, and Herod executes him and he dies. Shocking for the church. Peter gets arrested shortly after that because Herod logically goes, I just killed an apostle. Lightning didn't come down. God didn't show up and tell me I can't do that. If we can take one down, we can take them all down. Arrests Peter. Peter gets arrested, supernaturally released from prison through an angel appearing. When he gets back to the church in his town, you remember, Peter doesn't boldly go preach the next day in the same town. In fact, he tells the people, hey, keep it down. Things have heated up a lot. I've got to kind of lay low for a while and go somewhere else. And then he says this to them. Get word to James, not the same James that was, that was executed, to James, the brother of Jesus, the, the, the son of Mary and Joseph, who is in Jerusalem, leading the church in Jerusalem, and has become one of the great leaders of the New Testament, early New Testament church. So Peter says, get word to James about what's going on. James will know what to do. So they get word to James, tell him what's happening, and James writes this letter to kind of go, hey, everybody, hold, hang in there. I know it feels hard. I know it feels like things are moving backwards. I know it feels like God is not with us in the way that he ought to be, but I've got news for you. Those aren't truths. Those are just feelings. And so he writes this letter, the book of James, to the 12 tribes scattered all over the known world. In this letter, he lays out for us some extraordinary, simple realities on how to live a sustainable mission of life because mission gets hard at times. And so he says, man, this is how it plays out. 
And then he brings us into the conclusion of this letter. And as he concludes the letter now, he wraps all of what he's taught so far into a beautiful, neat package, lays it out, and hands us the last key pieces to what it looks like to continue to live a sustainable missional life, remembering who we are in Christ, why we're here on planet Earth, and what it looks like to live on mission on planet Earth and not get caught up in the day-to-day stuff and our own obsessions with comfort and self, but to actually continue to live for eternity, for the kingdom of God, for Jesus, knowing who we are, knowing where we belong. So let's turn to the book of James and let's see what James begins to do. We're going to turn to James chapter 5. If you brought your own Bible, James chapter 5, if you grab one of the Bibles we provide, it's on page 656, page 656, James chapter 5. Now, Before we start reading this section, remember that the last piece that we stepped into, James was writing to them about the the ability to boast about tomorrow, that no one can boast about tomorrow, and and the sort of the outcome of the wealthy. And if you pull that out of context, it may seem like God is talking to rich people and saying, if you're rich, it's a bummer because this is your outcome. That's not what God's doing at all. Remember that the church was facing Herod, facing Rome, facing the Sanhedrin, all those institutions were highly connected, highly powerful, highly wealthy. They had resources behind them. So it can be perceived, as it often is in our world, that the person with the most wealth, the most power, the most talent, that person can move the most around. That person can make the most progress. That person can move things the best. The institution with the most wealth, Power and talent can do that. And James reminds the people in here, listen, don't look at people at institutions with great power, wealth, and talent and think because they have that, they will overcome the gospel. Because that's not how it works. The gospel is not overcome by those realities. The gospel overcomes them. And then he lays out through chapter two and the tying in that ultimately, if we as Christ followers seek out to be generous, to be humble, and to be serving instead of being just simply powerful, wealthy, and talented, that ultimately generosity, humility, and, 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 and the, the act of service overcomes even the most powerful things. So he says, don't fear the powers that are against you just because they're rich and powerful and connected and talented. Now he's going to turn the light back onto the church and say, so now that we know we don't have to fear what's out there, let's be reminded of who we need to be and how we sustain mission. And he enters into this beautiful word picture. Take a look. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. What a beautiful start to this conclusion that James is drawing us into, right? He says, listen, your life as a Christ follower on mission is going to feel very much like the farmer's life. 
that the farmer gets up every morning, knows what he or she needs to do, knows what needs to be worked on, what needs to be taken place. There seems to be more to do than is even possible in a normal day. But he or she dives into the work and works diligently and faithfully and enduringly and steadfastly on the work that they need to do. And here's the kicker. You ready? After all the work they've done, there is no guarantee that their work is going to produce the outcome they've worked toward because what must they do? They must patiently wait for the early and late rains to produce the fruit. So all their labor not only seems fruitless during the seasons between the rain, but often if the rain doesn't show up, it can be fruitless. And then what does the farmer do? The next year they start all over again jumping back into faithful plowing because they recognize as much as they need to do the work to prepare the land for the rains, no rains, no fruit. But if the rains come and they haven't diligently stepped in, then ultimately they miss out on having the land produce what they want it to produce. It produces whatever it chooses outside of them. So the farmer jumps in and the farmer works. And James says to us, when you're living life on mission, you are like the farmer. There are too many things outside of your control, too many things that are unpredictable in the life you live, in the outcomes that you are going to work toward. So don't work for an outcome. Work like a farmer diligently serving the realities before you of mission for the kingdom of God and wait patiently for God to produce what God produces in his good time, in his good way. He actually says it so beautifully here. He says these words in verse eight, you also be patient. And he says this, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So he started by saying, be patient for what? The coming of the Lord. Now he actually says, establish your hearts on that coming. What is James saying here? What James is beginning is to, to, in the conclusion to bring us back to the beginning of the letter. And he's saying, remember, I started this with saying this, you have to have a right view of your struggles on mission on planet earth. You have to have your eyes fixed on the why behind all of this if you're going to sustain this. You have to remember what's going on. So James is saying, when you're in the weeds, in the middle of the day-to-day stuff and mission is hitting you hard and fruit doesn't seem to be born much and you're wondering what's going on and you're feeling overwhelmed and you're kind of trying to figure out, James goes, whoa, stop. Stop. You need to establish your heart on the fact that Jesus has already promised that he's returning. Why is that significant? Why does that matter? Because when you say, establish your heart on the return of Jesus or remember the return of Jesus, what you're saying is, remember what Jesus has already promised about the big story, right? He's already said, I'm going to return. And when I do, I am going to redeem all things and restore all things to myself. In other words, the story I've written is already a story of restoration and redemption. Every injustice, every pain, every struggle, every circumstance that came at you and I, everything that floored us, that threw us upside down, that tore at us, all of those things will be made beautiful and right when Jesus returns. Now you can certainly see that as the great return of 
of Jesus at the end of his historical season that he wants planet earth to live out, but this is also personal for you and I. Look, Jesus is going to return for you when you leave this planet, right? I mean, it says it. He's coming for you and I, and I got news for all of you. You're all going to die, all of you, right? And we're like, what? You can't say that. No, I can, absolutely. None of us here are going to live probably past 100. A few of you might make it to 103, 107, and we're going to kind of be excited and kind of feel sorry, right? I mean, it's, it's going to be like, wow, that's a long run. But listen, basically at about 100, all this comes to an end, right? So Jesus is coming back for you and I sometime between now and 100, which means that though you and I feel like life is this ongoing, long-suffering reality that's never-ending because we're in a circumstance that's overwhelming, actually life is a vapor. Actually life comes and goes like that, and at the end of that, Jesus shows up and your life story, as will be true for mine, is restored, redeemed in every way and we get to kind of look back and go, wow, now I see. So when we're in the middle of circumstances that are overwhelming, whether they were given to us and we're living on mission in them or whether we chose them, for some of us we're on mission because we suddenly have that disease we weren't planning to have. We suddenly lost that house we thought we were going to live in until we grew, grew, grew old. We suddenly lost that job that we were going to retire in. We're driving home to tell the spouse, I'm out of work, I don't know what to do. Now you have faced, as I have, circumstances that come out of the blue that are this planet's reality, and we find ourselves being called into mission in those circumstances to respond and to live in a way that the world cannot without Jesus, to have these realities not with no hope, but with hope and then living on mission in them and through them. Some of us have chosen opportunities to be redemptive, and when we chose them, they came and we were all starry-eyed and romantic, like it's so beautiful, I get to rescue stuff and people, and then they came and tried to kill us, and we were like, ah! And so we find ourselves in the middle of realities on mission as well that are overwhelming. And James says, whether it is circumstances given to you or whether it's things you chose to live out on mission when you are overwhelmed by what's going on, establish your hearts on this, that Jesus is coming and when he does, he will restore every story and he will redeem every story according to his will. So do not lose heart but stay the course. Have a right view of what God is up to in the trials and tribulations that come with living on mission on planet earth. As though to solidify that after he said establish or set or firm up or put together. That's an action word, right? You need to set this in place. As though to kind of follow up with that, he says this, uh, verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Sort of an odd little sentence to put in there, right? I mean, you're talking about establishing your heart, fixing your eyes on Jesus, setting your mind on things above, uh, making sure you have a right view of the reality in which you live, even though it feels overwhelming. And then he says, don't grumble against one another. Sort of an odd place to put that unless you start realizing how we human beings work, right? When we're in the middle of stuff we don't like, what do we do? We like talking about that. I don't know what it is, but we like talking about that stuff. There's lots of other cool stuff, but that stuff, that's much more central to us. So in my home, I see this all the time. I tell my kids constantly, if you keep grumbling and complaining about what you do not have and what you want, 
then you're going to live a miserable life. And then you're going to make everybody else around you miserable like you're making me right now. And then everyone's going to leave you and you're going to be alone. Now go to your room and be alone. No, I, I, I don't. But here's what I do, right? I tell my kids, grumbling and complaining changes the way we think. It diverts our eyes and our hearts off of what we have and fixes us on what we don't. And then we get stuck in the weeds. And then I try to tell myself that right after that. Yeah, you grumbler and complainer. You need to learn from your kids. You need to also do that because our minds are shifted by the things we think and the things we say. And so James says, if, you, if you're going to establish your hearts, I, I'll give you a clue. Start by not grumbling and complaining constantly about what's going on in your life that you don't like. And start actually living out the reality of seeing what God is doing in the bigger picture, even if the fruit today doesn't seem to be born in the way you want it to be born, and may not in your lifetime, or may, you don't know that. You plow, you wait patiently for the early and late rains to come. So he says, man, don't grumble. If there's grumbling, quit it. And then he says this, to continue to solidify this idea of having a right view of the bigger picture of what we live out in missional living when we're suffering. As an example, verse 10, of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed to remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. See, here he closes this idea out of having a right view of the current reality in which we live and, and, and keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, our mindset on things above our hearts, established on the redemptive promise that Jesus will restore and redeem all things. Then he says, let's, let's look back. See, we're great at looking back, us, us human beings beings, right? We look back and we, we're all excited about the other stories. You, what books do we read? We read books about people that have lived incredibly crazy stories and there's all sorts of hardships in the chapter and then we get to read the closing chapter and it's all beautiful and we go, wow, that's awesome. But when we look at our lives in chapter three and it's hard, we go, I don't know how we're going to live through this. So when we're looking back at other people, we see that those who have remained steadfast, that their story turns out beautiful. So James is saying, look, when you want to give up, you got to look ahead and go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, think about Jeremiah. He was one of the prophets. You should read about Jeremiah. This guy, he was so ticked at God about his life, it wasn't even funny, right? I mean, he had laments. He, he wrote lamentations. I mean, it's like he, all he did was like, why me? Why me? He actually said to God in Scripture, you tricked me. You said you're going to call me to be a prophet and it's going to be awesome, the life of a prophet. And then they just spent their whole existence trying to kill me. I don't want this life. I want my old life back. Now, do you think when Jeremiah died and he entered into eternity that he went, I, 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 I want my old life back? No. No, when he entered into eternity, I bet Jeremiah went, dude, I got to be Jeremiah. I got to be Jeremiah. I mean, look at that story. For real. I'm Jeremiah. I, God picked me for that story. Uh, but you said I tricked you. I thank you for tricking me because that was awesome. See, Jeremiah, when it got to the end of it, suddenly realized, oh my goodness, I got the cool story because life is a vapor. And if I got to live for the glory of God at that level of intensity, got into scripture and people still use my story to say, this is what steadfastness looks like. Dude, that's what I want. And so what James is saying is, let's keep our eyes on those guys, on those ladies that have lived it out before us, that have lived the whole story. So when we get weary in the middle of the story, we go, oh, hold, hold, hold. I may feel like God tricked me into this now, but at the end of the day, what story do you want? 
Do you want the ordinary story, the one of comfort and happiness? We just kind of lived out life, preserved your own life, and the, and the story of God slipped through your fingers? No, you don't want that story. I don't want that story. We want the other story, the Jeremiah story. I don't want to walk into eternity and going, oh, I got no story. I want to walk in and go, I got to be Renault. I got to be Renault. I mean, come on, how cool is that? Thanks for tricking me, God. And so what James is saying here is when you are stuck in the weeds and you're grumbling and complaining and overwhelmed and what's God doing and where is he and why isn't he here, stop. Establish your heart, fix your eyes, set your mind on the fact that Jesus promised he would redeem and then listen, remember those before you that have lived this out and finished their stories and just think to yourself what it's gonna look like when your story finishes. And then verse 12, he writes this, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. What an odd verse to put there. I'm just being honest. When I read this stuff, sometimes I'm a communicator, and there's stuff I forget early on in the message, and then I remember halfway through the message while I'm preaching to you that I forgot that really key point, and then my brain is trying to figure out where to fit the key point in later on because it's important to you, right? And I feel like that's what happened here with James, where he's like, ah, chapter two, I forgot to write about the whole oath thing. I'll just throw it in here. That's When I first read it, that's how I felt. But, but then, as you look at this in the context, you realize, no, 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 no. Th- this is the Holy Spirit intentionally placing each word where it belongs so that he can do what he needs to do. And James wasn't accidentally just suddenly jumping to oaths and then c- coming back to the story. You see, James started us out in the beginning of James chapter 1 with having a right view of our trials. You know, therefore, in, you know, when, you, when you face trials of many kinds, remember what God is doing, right view of our trials and our struggles. And then what did he do? He spent a a boatload of this letter going into what? Guarding our hearts, watching our words, and doing what we say. Faith without works is dead. Don't just say what you believe, do what you believe. And so now James is just quickly tying together each piece. Have a right view of the reality of your missional life so you don't get overwhelmed in the weeds today by no fruit being born. Remember Jesus. And just keep guarding your hearts, keep watching your words. Because, man, they'll derail you so fast. Don't make all sorts of promises and expectations and oaths and then just go back later on and say, I didn't work out. Just in the moment, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Stick with that. Keep it simple. Because when we start getting into all that stuff, it just gets all clouded. Keep your words simple. Guard them. Watch them. And do what you believe. Do what you say. Live it out. Live what you believe. Now, James is about to step into a passage that traditionally, at least in my experience, we tend to pull this next part of the book of James out very often, out of its context, and then we use it for a topic we're dealing with. It's usually prayer, because this deals with prayer now. James is going to step into some prayer. So whenever we're doing a, a talk on prayer, we'll, we'll, we'll come to James chapter 5, pull this little passage out and go, look, James is telling us how prayer works and, and how we're supposed to play it through and what we can expect from prayer. That's what we tend to do with this next passage. But in doing that, we totally miss the primary reality that James is using this passage for. We miss what it's actually trying to say. Is it about prayer? Yes. Does it give us some clues about how prayer can function? Yes, but that's secondary. Its primary purpose is much, much bigger than that. So as we enter into this, understand what James is about to do. 
You see, he's just told us to establish our hearts, fix our eyes on Jesus, set our minds on things above, and establish our hearts on the coming of Jesus. Beautiful, isn't it? Aren't you encouraged? I'm encouraged. But, But let's just be honest for a second. When you go out in that real world and it's Tuesday, like for me, when I walk into my home and it's a Tuesday afternoon and I've left work early because things were kind of crazy and I wanted to get home and I get there and I get in there and my kids are going nuts and two of them are fighting upstairs and this one's bleeding and that one has homework and is going, here, fix it now. And that one's going, you promised you'd do this and you didn't. And you got that and your wife is like, can you, I need to make dinner. Can you just take the, and you're doing all that. Here's what does not happen. I don't go, oh, you know, it's, it's all good. Jesus is coming back. It's all good. We're fine. We're fine. Jesus is returning. I feel great. Do you feel great? I mean, it's chaos right now. I would probably want to kill all these people. But really, because Jesus is returning, my eyes are fixed. My mind is set. My heart is established. I'm ready. That doesn't happen. That's not what happens in my home. Just podcast the last two years of messages and you'll see. I walk into that and I'm like, ah, where are you? Come on, you got me in this, you come fix it. I mean, that's what often happens. So it's great that James is saying, hey, keep your eyes fixed, your mindset, establish your heart, Jesus is coming back. But at the end of the day, if this is where the letter ends, then I kind of go, thanks, James. You told me what to do, you didn't tell me how, I'm stuck. But James is going to go, whoa, I'm not done yet. I haven't concluded yet. This is the beginning of the conclusion, now the end of it. James is going to show us now what it's going to take in simple form to continue to keep our hearts established, eyes fixed, minds set, and to transcend the reality of the immediate circumstances that seem so fruitless to remember that God is producing a bigger story than we can imagine. Watch. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church together and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working." Now when you read that, you can see why people think that this is a little formula for prayer, right? If you do these things and you do it in this way, then these are the results that you can expect. You see why people think that. You see why it's easy to do that. Why we've all been there. But you see what James is actually saying here is as he's coming to the conclusion of a letter to a church that's facing overwhelming realities and he's trying to show them how to stay on course in mission when they're overwhelmed. And he said, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He's now saying this. So here's how it works, friends. Are you sad? Pray. Are you happy? Pray. Are you sick? Pray. Are you healthy? Pray. Are you alone? Pray. Are you together? Pray. Are you with your friends? Pray. If you don't want to pray, get the elders. Have them pray for you. If they're not there to pray, then get in community. Share your stuff. Pray together. What's James saying? Pray. That's right. It's not complicated. Pray. Pray when? All the time. Pray unceasingly. Pray, 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 pray. That's what James is saying. Keep praying. Why? 
Because if you pray, you'll get what you want. No, that's not what James is saying. James is saying, you want to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus? You want to keep your mind set on things above? You want to have a right view of your current missional living circumstances? You want to stay the course, stay steadfast, stay established, uh, count on the promises of God in the future? Well, then you need to be connected to God. If you are disconnected to God, here's what's going to happen. Your feelings are going to go all over the place. You're going to feel all sorts of things. Then you're going to want all sorts of things. You're going to want comfort again, convenience, happiness, all that stuff that God will give us, but it doesn't come easy in the missional life on planet Earth because this is not the end of our story. It's the mission part of our story. We get to have that incredible life once we leave planet Earth, and we get to experience some of the blessings of that incredible life in the intimacies we have with Jesus now. But this is mission, folks. We're on planet Earth because it's a war zone that we are the ambassadors to reconcile people to God for. And what did we expect? So James is saying, listen, you want to stay the course, then here's my first recommendation. Stay engaged with God regularly. See, what James is telling us here is that the missional life that we have been invited into and called into as Christ followers is not sustainable without the devoted life it connected with Jesus. You cannot live on mission sustainably if your devotion to Jesus is waning consistently because you're too busy on mission. I'm preaching to the choir right here, not you guys, me. I love mission, love big stories, love going hard and fast. But the reality is if I am not deeply engaged regularly in building my heart into devotion for Jesus by staying connected with him, then at the end of the day, my missional life will not remain steadfast and I will not have Jeremiah's story. So James is saying, you know what you need to do, but to do it, stay engaged with Jesus. Be with him all the time. Now, why would James then add into this some of the outcome of prayer? You know, if you, if you do this, you'll, you'll see the sick people raised up and you'll see those who have unforgiven sin forgiven and then you'll see souls restored. I mean, it's pretty cool stuff. Why does he add that in if he's not trying to tell us how to get what we want? Well, it's very simple. James is laying out for us what we should expect on our missional life, right? That's what he's doing. So here's what he's saying. Listen, folks. Don't pray for an outcome, pray for connection, pray for intimacy. In other words, pray so that you will stay connected with God and stay intimate with Him. However, here's a little clue for you. If you're intimate with God all the time praying, God's will and God's work is always redemptive, always restorative. It always is. God's will and God's work is always restoring. Why? Because God brings light, God brings life. God brings freedom. God undoes the mess that we're in. So anywhere God shows up, there shows up redemption. There shows up restoration. So when you are connected with God, when you are intimate with Him, and you, are, and you know His will, and you're praying His will, and you're living His will, what should you expect to see as part of your story? A bunch of redemptive stuff. You will see those lost and unforgiven, forgiven and set free. You will see souls soaring. And you will even see physical expressions of this in some stories where the sick, the dead, the broken are healed. 
Is that an every time deal? No, because listen, not even in Peter's world or even in Jesus' world did he make a formula where he said every time this is what happens. He goes, no, listen, the will of God is restorative and redemptive. And whatever is going to bring glory to the gospel in such a way to restore and redeem, that's what God is going to do. So our job is to, is to be so connected with God that we know his will, that we live his will, that we pray his will, and then we see things happen. And so yeah, if you're in prayer, regularly connected to God, devoted to him, in love with Jesus, living on mission, you're gonna see some redemptive stuff take place. It's gonna happen in your life. There may be seasons of long suffering, but overall, that's also gonna be part of it. That's what James is saying. So expect that. Expect to see some pretty cool stuff. And then he tells this little story. Right after all this, you know, he says, uh, verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So he uses this illustration of Elijah with this crazy cool miracle to illustrate to us in our life of prayer how this plays out like Elijah. And what we tend to do with this is we pull this little story out and we see, see what God is saying is if you pray by faith, then you're gonna see these results. Look, Elijah did. He prayed by faith and he saw those results and we're like Elijah. So if we pray by faith, then we should see those results. Is praying by faith important? Absolutely. Does praying by faith produce things internally and externally that changes the world? Yes, but that's not what James is telling us here. Because if James wanted to tell us that, he could have used any one of Elijah's miracles he produced, not this one. This one makes no sense here. See, you read this as a miracle of Elijah, but Elijah healed sick people. Elijah raised dead people. So if James is talking here about when we're sick and how we're going to get well, wouldn't it make more sense as a communicator to write a little miracle about when, you know, maybe Elijah raised someone from the dead? So look, Elijah can raise the dead, so surely we can heal the sick. I mean, that would make sense. Why the miracle about rain? Why'd he pick that one? I mean, honestly, when last have you driven down the road in a rainstorm here in Florida and gone, stop, just to see what would happen? I have. I do that fairly regularly just for fun in my car. Not so much because I need the rain to stop, but it would be pretty cool. Stop, boom, yes, yes, that's so awesome. You're so awesome, but it's never happened. So here's the thing though. The only reason I do that is because it'll be fun. Do I really need the rain to stop? I mean, is that a miracle you want to see produced regularly? Every time it rains, we just make it stop so we don't have to walk out in our umbrellas. No, the miracles we need are ones like healing our sick and raising our dead and the big things. Rain is just kind of irrelevant here. But when you understand why this particular miracle is absolutely the perfect one to pick for this illustration, because James is not trying to say, look, when Elijah believed he got what he wanted, so can you. He's illustrating something far bigger than that. This particular miracle had a deep, reality to it that actually helps connect us to what James is trying to say, which is this. Stay connected to God enough that you will know his will, live his will, pray his will, and then you will see what happens. So take a look. Let's turn to 1 Kings uh, chapter 17. That's where this whole thing takes place. In 1 Kings chapter 17 on page 192 of our Bibles, uh, it, it begins this way. Verse one, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tish uh, in Gilad said to Ahab, who was an evil king, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. 
See, what happened is that Elijah was told by God, I want you to go to Ahab and the rebellious people of Israel, and I want you to tell them it's not going to rain for the next few years. I am going to hold back all of the life-giving water so that they will struggle because they are rebellious, and I'm not punishing them. I want to reconcile them to myself. And God knows with us human beings, He reconciles us oftentimes by allowing us to live out the fruit of our rebellion so we get all scared and run back to him. So he says to Elijah, tell them they need to wake up. There's going to be no rain and it's going to get hard and they need to come back to me. So Elijah goes and tells Ahab this. Look, here's the deal. God told me to tell you it's not going to rain by my word for a couple of years. Then he leaves, and actually in this very passage in chapter 17, this is where Elijah raises the widow's son from the dead. So again, if James was trying to make a point about outcome and healing, he could have used this miracle. This is much cooler to use. But look at this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 18. This is fascinating. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. I mean, that's not even a fair miracle, right? That's like God going to Elijah and saying to Elijah, tell Ahab, Ahab I'm going to make it stop raining when you pray. Okay. And then three and a half years later, he goes to Elijah and says, now go back to God and tell him it's going to start raining again as soon as you say it. I mean, Elijah's not like going, oh, you know what? How am I going to get these people back to God? I got it. No rain. Stop the rain. Awesome. God goes, Elijah, anything you say, man. No, that's not how it's working. God is revealing his will to Elijah because Elijah has been established as his voice, his prophet, his ambassador on planet earth. He is telling Elijah to go and communicate his will, to live out his will, to pray his will so that we will see his will. See how cool it is? God is allowing Elijah to participate in bringing reconciliation of his people back to himself. And he's saying to us, you, like Elijah, have the same nature as Elijah. You are called to the same things he's called to, aren't you? Let's, let's take a look at who we are. Let's try to remember. We are, according to Scripture, made new. The old is gone, the new has come, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in our rescue of being made new, we are now ambassadors of Christ, that's in the Bible, and reconcilers of men and women to God. In other words, we are ministers of reconciliation. What was Elijah? A minister of reconciliation. And we are reconcilers because we have been rescued into intimacy with God. We have been filled with the Spirit of God. We have, we have discovered the will of God and His redemptive promises. And we are called now to reveal that will to people and to be the voice of God so that they will come to reconcile to God despite their current rebellion from God. That's who we are. And we can know the will of God. We know that because in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says this. Therefore, dear brothers, in view of God's mercy, present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will know the will of God, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, we have been invited like Elijah into knowing the will of God, living the will of God in our freedom in Christ, praying the will of God. And if we know the will of God, live the will of God, pray the will of God, what do you think we'll see? I'll clue you in. The will of God, won't we? I mean, if you, if you know it, live it, pray it, the will of God is going, to, is going to be the fruit. So what he says here is, listen guys, you're on mission like Elijah 
to know, to live, to pray the will of God and to see the will of God. And why is he saying it here? Because he just told us, you want to know how you keep your eyes fixed and your mind set on things above? You pray. You pray all the time. You pray unceasingly. You stay connected to God. You stay devoted to Jesus by the disciplines of being present with him regularly. And if you're present and devoted, you will know the will of God, live the will of God, pray the will of God, see the will of God, and you will be like Elijah who brought the will of God to people. That's exciting stuff. That's pretty awesome. And now, James is going to conclude the last little piece of this letter that he's going to write. So I'm excited, aren't you? This is the big conclusion. This is like the deathbed moment, right? Last words out of the mouth. I'm a communicator. I'm expecting this to be gold, man. This is gonna wrap it all together. It's gonna launch us out. It's gonna be awesome. Here it is, ready? Verse 19. My brothers, if any among you wonder from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wondering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. End of story. And that's just odd, man. <laughs> to be honest, as a communicator, I'm like, what on earth? Not even love James. I mean, just love James. You just kind of went... We're on this big thing about setting your eyes and your mind and being in, having a right view of your circumstances as it relates to mission. Uh, you're watching and guarding your heart and words. You're constantly intimate with Jesus like Elijah. That's awesome. By the way, if anyone wonders and someone saves them, you're saving their soul. Anyways, good luck. I just felt like when I read this the first time, like that is not a big closer, James. That is not the inspiring last words I was looking for. But then, then I live life for a while. And I discover something, and I realize why this is the perfect ending to this letter. It's exactly where James needed to end. Because you see, what I've discovered about my life is this, that vision bleeds out of me faster than anything else in the world. Everything I know, everything I believe, left to myself for long enough, it just bleeds right on out. Bye-bye. I, as soon as I am disconnected from the gospel, from the scriptures, from intimacy with Christ and from biblical community, suddenly everything I thought I knew bleeds out and here's where I end. Here's where I end every time. Well, at least I have Jesus still. And I'm going to heaven, that's good enough. See, I abandon the story that God has for my life that is full and wonderful and has all the stuff about this mission and being Jeremiah and it comes with hard days and tough times. It's not always comfortable, not always fun, not always easy, not always happy, but I abandon all of that to sneak back and slink back into an easy life of comfort and happiness that gives me whatever I want. Don't live for God because I forget everything James just showed me. That's what the church was facing. Uh, Herod's pretty strong, Rome's pretty crazy, the powers that be are coming at us. Maybe we should just settle down. Maybe we should just step back. Maybe we should just stop. See, our tendency always is when we start forgetting what James has laid out for us, we either start fighting people instead of fighting the spiritual principalities behind them, or we bail on mission. Those are our two responses. And what James is saying here is, listen, if you try to do Christ following alone, you will forget, you will wonder, and you will find yourself thinking things and doing things that your friends who follow Jesus will look at and go, what is going on, why? And you'll go, I got it. You will wonder, it's, it's just what we do. I'll do it, you'll do it, we'll all do it. So here's what he says. 
He gives us permission as a community to say, look, if you're going to live on mission sustainably, if you're going to be devoted to Christ in a way that shapes the way that you live, you're going to need each other big time. Because you're going to forget all this stuff, and then you're going to start having feelings about yourself, and you're going to gravitate back. But I don't want that for you. See, James doesn't want that for us. I don't want that for me, and I don't want that for you. So he says, stay tight in community. Abandon anything that seems to be in your life that draws you away from community and stay tight in community. Here's why. Because in the biblical community with others, whenever they wonder, you are given permission not to judge them, but to step into their life and to draw them and invite them back into life and freedom. See, the problem is we've lived in church for so long over the centuries of judgment that we're afraid of this now. See, this is, it's reactive now. You see, in the, in the church of old that has grown up in our culture and in cultures before, uh, we, we saw correction this way, right? You don't dress like me. You don't talk like me. You don't act like me. You don't belong here. And anytime anyone did anything, we, we were quick to do this. And so we called it correction. We called it calling you back from wondering. But it wasn't. It was me elevating myself to feel good about me by breaking you down and showing that I'm better than you. And so what we've done is, as a culture and as a church culture, we have either found ourselves to be highly judgmental in some churches, or the other side of the spectrum is we don't really get into each other's lives and do any real correcting or calling back because that might be perceived as judgment, and we don't want to do that. So we live in this kind of quasi-community experience where we say we're doing Christianity together, but we're not. Coming to a gathering like this is not doing uh, community together, following Jesus together, living on mission together. It's not what this is. This is celebrating together and being inspired together. So we're all experiencing the same thing in the same room, but we are not in the same story yet. That happens when we start doing life out there day to day because the fact of the matter is you and I will wonder from these truths. We will forget the promises of Christ. We will get caught up in the weeds. We will start grumbling and complaining. We will get lost to this. We will bail on it and we will find ourselves living the life that we used to dread. The comfortable, easy, simple life. I, I have two friends I, I do life together in intensity with. Floor and Scott, they both attend Mosaic here. Both of them have adopted kids so they get that part of my story. Both of them have a lot of kids, so they get that part of my story. Both of them work a job and have a family to, to lead and raise and love, so they get the part of the tension between the two worlds. They get that part of my story. Both of them have awesome and crazy wives. I'll tell you why. Because those wives are awesome to choose the stories they did and crazy to choose the stories they did, right? So they both have wives that often are raising above anything we can imagine and often falling apart. So they've got that, and I have one of those too. And both of them are regularly falling apart and regularly overwhelmed and regularly going, what have I done? Just like me. So we hang out about every other week Usually on a Wednesday night after 10.30, we go, we go out, we grab a quick dessert and then go see an action flick, live vicariously through it and then spend an hour and a half talking afterwards about our lives and bringing each other back to Jesus. But in between that, we text. We text almost every day. One of us sends out a text because one of our lives every day is completely overwhelming, so there's plenty to text, right? And so our texts are often kind of wild. I always say if I die at some point and someone reads my text, they can read anything in there, but when they read this conversation, they're gonna go, wow, wow that was wild. Because oftentimes my texts are, ah, I'm freaking out. Where is God? What's going on? I think I'm gonna die. I'm the pastor, but just ignore that for the second. Ding. 
And then they send a text back shortly after that, and it usually starts out this way. Totally understand, man. I'm totally with you. Been there. Am there. We'll be there tomorrow. Uh, you don't, don't feel like it's... it's uh, and then they'll go, but, but. And then they'll say, remember, remember the gospel. Remember Jesus. Remember your hope. Remember, it's, it's not over yet. Remember the big story. And they'll do all sorts of things to tell me that. And then on other days, I get the text, ah! and then I go, oh, I totally feel you, but, and I have my arsenal of stuff. And so back and forth, we stay there. Do you know why we do that? Because I've learned something about life. Preventive care is far, far better than cure. We know that about our physical lives, right? We've become a really sick nation now because we eat a bunch of junk. And then what happens is we all get sick, and then we want to go get cures, and the cures aren't working so well. But if we would just be preventive and actually be healthy, then we would see a much, much different story, wouldn't we? And that's true in this as well. If you want to live outside of biblical community, doing life alone, and then when it all falls apart, and when you've forgotten everything, and when you've forgotten all of this, and when you've integrated back into the comfortable life, your friends from your biblical community are calling you like, come back, and you're like, eh, no, I know, but I'm, I'm good now. If you don't want to end up there where you have so forgotten that even the calling back is now a difficult transition, then stay in it day in and day out so that you never get there, so that we never have to come and call you back from like some crazy place, but that in fact we're calling each other back moment by moment. So don't judge people. Don't point at them. Don't tell them what they're doing wrong. Just walk up to the people you really love that are in biblical community with you when they're acting all stupid like I will do and you will do on multiple occasions and just go like this. What are you doing, man? You love Jesus. I love Jesus. We know the promises. You've forgotten them. I get it. I forget them too, but it's time to remember. Now, you, you can avoid this or not avoid this depending on how we, well you know them, but the bottom line is this. James is ending this entire letter about the way of the wise with a single idea. You are not going to remember any of this unless you do this together. This is why we make missional community such a big deal around here. Seems like we overdo it a bit, but we don't. We make it a big deal because we know something. If you're doing a gathering and you're not connected in any other way, you're actually not connected for real. You are, you are here, but you're not connected in this way. And what will happen is you will slowly forget and then you'll miss out on the wonderful, extraordinary stories that God is unfolding in and through you. And we don't want that for you and I don't want that for me. So let's take James at his word. And let's remember that if we're gonna live a sustainable, missional life, we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, our minds set on things above, our hearts established on the return of Christ, the promises of his restoration and redemption, and we need to remember that the reality of our struggles in missional living is part of the story. We also need to, in order to do that, be with Jesus often developing that devotional life constantly through the disciplines of the faith. And we need to do that together in community, in community, so we remember. Ultimately, all James is saying is this. Like the farmer who gets up every morning and goes out into the fields and plows the fields, waiting for the early and late rains to come, if they come, it's out of his control or her control, so too you must live. Go into the fields because Jesus asked you to and plow them Plow redemptively, pour your life into others. Pour your life into the circumstances that seem to be your enemy, but are actually there as an opportunity for you to make the gospel known. 
Live in them in a manner that demonstrates you knowing Jesus. And then if you start wondering, pray that somebody's gonna have the courage to come to you and say, what are you doing? And if you see someone else wondering, have the courage to go to them and say, what are you doing? And so we will stay the course, live in freedom, and not find ourselves in that place where we are pursuing our comforts and our life, preserving our way, and in so doing, losing the very life that Jesus has written for us to live. Man, that's the nightmare. Let's not go there. Let's live faithfully like a great farmer does. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that in the middle of a circumstance where the early church in the New Testament was facing unimaginable odds against them and obstacles that were so overwhelming that you had James write these words to them to give them the means by which they can see clearly, live it out, and see your story continue to unfold. God, may we gain deep vision from James's writings and may we live out this reality staying intimate enough with you that we would know your will, live your will, pray your will, and see your will. And keeping our eyes fixed on the bigger story of your promise, not getting stuck in the weeds and becoming grumblers and complainers, but actually beginning to kind of go, man, God is up to something here. I know Job's story, I know Jeremiah's story, I know what God does with stories. God is up to something here. And may we live that out in the circumstances that you've allowed to shape our lives that we didn't choose, like illnesses and houses lost and jobs lost and loved ones lost and all sorts of things that we didn't ask for, we didn't want, but, but we have now. May we live faithfully on mission through those. And for the circumstances we chose as opportunities to be redemptive in others' lives, God, when they get hard, may you give us eyes to see that you are up to something much bigger, that your will and your work is always redemptive. And like a farmer, we should just wait patiently for the early and late rains to come when they come to see the fruit born of the labor you've called us to work out. Keep us steadfast. Establish our hearts on your coming and make us great ambassadors for you, Jesus, we pray. Amen.